Welcome to Too Deep, Hokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Virginia Tech lost the bowl game to Oklahoma State 30-21. It was a frustrating game, Robbie. We got a bunch of stuff to talk about on today's podcast. Get us kicked off with a cheers. Let's cheers it up twofold. One to uh, Mr. Frank Beamer who just got introduced into the, uh, well, I guess he, it was announced that he's getting introduced, right? I think it's going to happen up in New York City, the actual introduction, but he'll be going into the Hall of Fame as he should. Uh, got a nice little uh, conversation with Nick Saban, congrats inside. Uh, also, you know, Shane Beamer was there for Georgia, so a pretty eventful night, even though Georgia didn't pull it out, so that was kind of cool. And then the second, I have to do a cheers as sad as it is to see them go to Tim Settle, Tremaine Edmonds, and Terrell Edmonds. We'll get into it, but them making their jump to the NFL. So cheers to those guys. Uh, it's going to be sad. We'll miss them, but best of luck to them. I hope they have a great career. Cheers. So we do have to talk about the early departures for the NFL and I want to talk some basketball at the end of the episode, but let's start with the bowl game. You know, going into that game, I think both of us were like, ah, oh, we got nothing to lose. It's a tough team. We kind of struggled offensively down the stretch, and everyone's thought that was that, you know, if we lose, that's okay. But the way the game unfolded, I think, made it a little bit more bitter for everyone, especially me. I, I felt that way. And, you know, it's partially because we started off so well. Both teams scored on their first drives, but we answered their field goal with a touchdown. And it was a beautiful first drive for Virginia Tech. It culminated in the 13-yard touchdown run by Jackson, but there was a lot of good rushes on that drive, and we just went right down the field. Same thing on the second drive for Virginia Tech, just as methodical, took a ton of time off the clock, chunks of yards on the ground, first and goal from the one, and we fumbled on what looked to be an RPO, uh, that Josh seemed to be keeping and that play changed the game. That was, well, I might want to take it a little bit later after we do the recap, but that is one of the most frustrating uh, parts of the entire game. I think for me and really changed the momentum of the overall game, I think in a lot of different ways, the defense stepped up. They held OK state to a field goal on the response drive after that turnover but we unfortunately gave up a touchdown right before the half on a 39-second drive. And that was really backbreaking because the defense had played really well up to that point. We were down at the half, 13-7. to uh, OK State started the second half with another touchdown, went up 20-7, to and then they scored again on the following drive. It was three straight drives with a touchdown for Oklahoma State. And it was about in a 10-minute stretch that the defense didn't play well. Uh, we got the ball back. It was 27 27- what, 20, 20 to 7, we scored a touchdown to make it 27-14. Right. And they responded with the 65-yard touchdown to Washington. That was the third one. Okay. Yep. And then on the next drive, we were really struggling to move the ball, and we had that beautiful fake punt. <laughs> Chase Moomau for quarterback, maybe? <laughs> that was, you know, that if we want to talk about funny stuff in the game, that was, and a lot of people tweeted about this, and a lot of people posted about it, but... They changed his number. They did everything. Like they, this was a methodical uh, fake punt, like any nothing I've ever seen before in terms of beautiful. how much effort went into it. And then somehow the quarterback gets on the field, 
I got to be honest, I didn't notice it. I thought it was Bradburn out there. A lot of other people are a lot more more observant and notice the 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 change, but it was gorgeous. And the pass was actually a really nice pass too. Um, it was a perfect pass to Chicago, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And down the left sideline, and it was beautiful. Twenty two yards on that one, and we had a fourth and nine on. After that punt happened, we had moved down the field a bit, and I think we were on the 10-yard line. We had a fourth and nine. We decided not to kick the field goal and what was still a tight game at that point. Josh Jackson got sacked on that play, turned it over on downs, uh, but we did get the ball back because OK State did the exact same thing on the next drive. Yeah, it was a bad snap, and yeah, Josh Jackson basically bobbled it, and then he ended up getting, getting sacked. So we drove to the Oklahoma State 30 on our next drive. So again, we were on the 10, then we're on the 30, and that was the interception by Josh Jackson. That really was pretty much the end of the game. There were still some things that could have gone our way and maybe gotten back into it, but that turnover basically like in their end, it wasn't the red zone, but it was pretty close, off of Patterson's hands. It wasn't a good throw. It really wasn't Patterson's fault. I think there was a little bit of a mis- miscommunication between the two guys. They were on the sideline talking to each other afterwards, but... Josh was a little off target all night, and that interception was a backbreaker. Yeah, that was um, that that and the the pass was definitely. I, I, it's always tough because the way the angle it was, it was behind him, but only because of the route. And you know, I, I Patterson, you know, those balls you either got to catch or you got to knock down. You can't be doing tip drill, so I yeah. blame it a little bit on that. But the pass was not good. So. Virginia Tech still got the ball back after that. Took it right down the field for a touchdown. Another rushing touchdown by Jackson. Made it 27-21 with 540 left. And so even with all that happening, we were still in the game. And that field goal at that point would have been nice, right? Oklahoma State got a huge third down on the following drive on that run by Justice Hill down the sideline. It was like a long third and something. And they caught it, led to the final field goal, went up by nine points, and... We had a drive, but at that point we needed two scores. Like it wasn't going to happen. Everyone knew it wasn't going to happen, and we lost thirty to twenty-one. It sucks because the immediate reaction after the game for me was that if that fumble on the first down on the one-yard line that Stephen Peoples and Josh had the mesh point error, that doesn't happen, and he just runs the ball right into the end zone. The whole game's different. We're up fourteen to three. And we could have easily won that game. It was so winnable. Uh, I assume your reaction was similar. Yeah, it came down to three plays. Uh, the fumble at the goal line, which you should not be running RPO at the one-yard line with uh, when it's first and one, uh, just so we're all clear. Uh, and I'm we've not, been pounding it the whole I'm way down the field. I'm not a football genius, but that is an unacceptable play call. Even you know, There's no way Josh should be pulling the ball out of the running back's stomach, especially not Stephen Peoples, who's 225 pounds and has been pushing people around all day. That's not your best move. Um, the bad snap near the goal line on fourth, which was the uh, sack that you uh, alluded to. Uh, if we just took the three points there and didn't go for it on fourth, now we're talking about 10 points. That's the game right there, 31-30. Um, and then the interception while we were driving, which was less uh What's the best way to put this? It was less certain that we were going to come away with points there, but we were still at the 30-yard line, and we were driving and driving well, and then that one bad pass. 
Um, so three plays is all it took for us to you know flip that game on its head. The biggest tech takeaway other than the turnovers was that everyone was down on Josh Jackson after this game. If you look at his stat line, 22 of 41, so right around 50%, 250 yards, but he had three touchdowns in the game, two rushing, one passing, and obviously the one interception and the one bad pull on the RPO. But it was the inaccuracy that I think people were really kind of harping on after the game. Like the throws were too long. I think he missed Murphy on a wide open down the field pass. I don't want to keep going back to the freshman QB thing because he played the entire season. This is the 13th game of the season. Unfortunately, we witnessed two freshmen in the national championship game balling out. So it's hard to like go back to that. But he is a freshman and he's not as highly touted as those two guys playing in the national championship game. His stat line is what it is. You know, one TD, one interception, a couple on the ground and a fumble. Uh, he did take that shot uh, when he was sliding in the first quarter, which I think it might have rattled him a little bit because he was actually playing pretty well leading up to that. Um, but what didn't go on to the stat line and what didn't go on to paper, and I think why people walked away frustrated, at least that watched every play, he nearly threw a pick six in the second quarter. He nearly threw another pick six in the third quarter. He threw a dropped interception that the guy ended up doing push-ups for um, in the third <laughs> yeah. quarter. Yeah. Um, he had Kuma wide open uh, at the beginning of the fourth, and he threw it out of his reach, which is the pass that I think you were referring to. Uh, he threw Then he threw the actual interception in the fourth quarter <laughs> on a bad throw to Patterson. So what he did do well in this game, I think, is he made a lot of his feet. You know, he picked up some first downs in a lot of key uh, situations where we needed to. Um, yeah, but a lot of third down conversions in this game for us. It, Ten of eighteen—that's pretty impressive. Exactly. So I I walked away from the game thinking about his overall performance as he did more than he needed to on the ground, and he did. Um, you know, he he stood up and you know he took that big shot and he picked up first downs, and the passing throughout the game got continued got worse and worse as it as it went on and he's making really bad not decisions but really bad passes which is frightening um that that he has people that could be you know open and could make a you know uh, that you you could see him threading a nice pass in there and getting it and he's off by two yards and it's almost an interception on a number of occasions so Yes, he walked away with one interception. I think it should have been three, and it potentially could have been four in this game, quite frankly. Yeah, he was inaccurate. There's no doubt about it. But it, And that's the thing that about Josh, especially as the year went on. We saw more of that inaccuracy, especially with the down-the-field, more bomb-type passes. And in this one, the shorter passes were starting to become inaccurate too. I will say late in the game, on some of those drives where we were moving down into their end, he was making some nice throws still. And that's the thing that I see the flashes of Josh, like really needling a ball in there sometimes. But unfortunately, and overwhelmingly in this game, there were so many more bad throws than good throws, really. I mean, he did complete more passes than uh, than he didn't. But you, like you said, it could have easily been more interceptions. Some guys, I mean, the Kuma touchdown pass, that he caught, he ripped that from the defensive back. That was an incredible catch by Kuma in the end zone. Yeah, that was beautiful. And I think, to your point, there's a lot to be said that he's a freshman, and you know you can't you can't 
put everything on that, and we're not playing for the national championship for a reason. So those quarterbacks that we see out there are a little bit different caliber, I think, than what we're bringing in. But I will say, watching and rewatching that film and seeing, um, and this is going to go on the negative side, and, and I don't know, I think it was a scheme type thing more than anything else because I think we were so worried about the deep pass, which we paid for dearly with Washington in a couple instances and with um, um, Aitman as well. Um, Mason Rudolph's ability to throw a 15 to 25-yard pass, no problem was literally the most impressive thing that I've ever seen. Just just laying into these passes that were so on the money right there to to receivers. And these aren't five-yard passes. These aren't screen passes. He's throwing 15, 20-yard passes yeah. like nobody's business. And when you watched, you know, it, maybe it exacerbated people's thoughts on Josh Jackson having to see how talented Mason Rudolph and that wide receiving core is because... There, it would be like, you know, first and 20, and they're like, yeah, we're not going to just, you know, go for yardage here. We're just going to get the first down. We'll just throw a 25-yard pass. No problem. Like, and it just happened every time. Um, so, you know, seeing those two and the difference in their passing abilities um, really just kind of highlighted how much room for growth Josh has, as well as how good Rudolph is. Yeah, I thought the defense did a pretty great job of making him be as inaccurate as he can be the problem is when we make a mistake on defense like that one play where Adonis was just you know completely screwed it up and was chasing him down the field like Rudolph just puts it right in there like if you make a mistake he will absolutely take advantage of it when we had Murphy going right down the field at the end of the first half wide open and Josh just missed him by five yards too long that's the difference you know like when they made a mistake we couldn't capitalize and they capitalized on every single one of ours. Yeah, Washington just you know lops off a 65-yard touchdown pass down the center of the field, and it looked honestly like the easiest play that oh, I've yeah. ever seen. Like Mason wasn't even like struggling; he even flipped the ball in his hands once and was just chilling. And he just looks down the field, sees Washington, and he's like, "Yeah, this is a 65-yard touchdown," and just lobs it in there, no problem. And yeah, I understand the coverage was a bust because we didn't have anybody. Um, you know, play, playing back, and there was obviously miscommunication, but that's not an easy pass. I mean, that was on the money, hit him right in the hands in stride, and no problem because Washington's not that fast. He's just that good at route running. That's pretty impressive, and that's that's where we struggled was where they they took the top off off on us a couple times, and usually it led to touchdowns. So, do you want to do some positives now, since we've we've bummed out the listeners? I thought the defense played great. I think Mason Rudolph is a extreme. I, Washington obviously won the award for the best wide receiver in the country. So let's leave it at that. Mason Rudolph broke every passing record and every yardage record. I think that uh, Oklahoma State has. So let's be honest. We went up against a high-powered offense, and you know what? We kept them to thirty points. That's extremely impressive. And there were a number of times that those stops that we got or even the field goals we held them to were inside of like 30 yards um, where we they made a huge play and then the defense really buckled down and stopped them and held them to, in one instance, they stopped them on fourth down and they got no points. In another instance, it was a field goal. 
Um, it was it was extremely impressive what the defense was able to do. They buckled down on the run as well. You know, there were the Oklahoma State was having success in the rush game for a little bit, and I think the defense got better at stopping that throughout the game. So I thought they played well with three sacks as well. Gaines Hill, Walker, um, you know, Tremaine was all over the fields making tackles and at least pressuring. I thought it was a really exciting performance for the um, for the defense. Yeah, they only had that ten minute stretch that it went haywire, and we gave up those three touchdowns. But, you know, eight tackles for loss as a team, the three sacks that you just talked about, and that 30 points, yeah, it can seem like a lot of points. They were averaging 46 for the season. So to hold them to 30 points is pretty damn impressive, even with the busts. And if we don't screw up, you know, deep in their end a few times, we could have put up the 31 points you're talking about. Or maybe because we scored that, our defense has a little bit more juice or whatever. Because we did everything you you were supposed to do right. And that leads us to another positive, which was the run game. You know, we were taking time off the clock. We were moving the ball on the ground with Peoples. McLeese had 124 yards. Great performance by him early in the game with Peoples until, you know, what might have put him in the doghouse a little bit with the fumble. He was running like a man possessed. He was looking great going right up the middle. And that was the exact game plan we needed to do against this team. And it was working. We had it. And... It just it just came unglued after that fumble, man. It was beautiful. Uh, but was I was proud of the way the plan. running game went. Yeah. I mean, the game plan was absolutely stunning. I don't know if Fuente could have drawn it up any any better, which was taking time off the clock, running it. McLeese looked shifty. He, he looked explosive. Um, and Stephen Peoples looked powerful. I mean, they were a one-two back combo that I thought was really exciting. In addition to that, I know the pass game wasn't that great, but we were spreading it around. I, I like that Kuma, Grimsley, and Patterson each had about 60 to 70 yards each. So, um, you know, we're starting yeah. to see some depth come. I Seven know, catches for Patterson. That's, I, know. I, I was, couldn't believe that when I saw it. Like, that is a lot of catches. Yeah. So we're starting, and then Kuma had that tremendous catch in the end zone that you talked about where he ripped it out from the, the um, defensive back. So... You know, there were a lot of positives, I think, to take away from the game because, quite frankly, we could have won the game if if the couple things went a different way um, or we would have made it very close or an overtime uh, a game. So I thought it was um, the perfect game plan and it was executed very well throughout the game. The run game looked phenomenal and it was very exciting for next year. Um, and then we made a few mistakes. And that's it. And with somebody like Mason Rudolph and that offense, a few mistakes is all you need. Yeah. Third highest rushing total of the season for us, 248 yards. Only ECU and ODU were better totals. And we ran for five yards a carry, which was our second highest on the season. My favorite play might have been that play by Holston. It was a third down. They pass it to him in the flank, and he's dead to rights by the defensive back or whoever was out there, the linebacker. And he just put his arm out, swiped him behind him, and went for the first down. And that is just what we've been missing so badly from our running backs. Just making the first guy miss so you can get those five yards, those six yards, that first down. I love that play by Holston. In addition to McLeese and Peoples, it makes me feel a lot better about the running game next year. Despite losing McMillan, that running game that we showed, if we can continue that next year, use Peoples and McLeese in the right spots, and and really focus on a little bit more, allowing Josh to get comfortable. 
I feel a lot better about the identity of our offense going forward because we were missing that for so much of the season. Maybe it was people's injury. Maybe the offensive line was having a hard time gelling. I'm not sure exactly. All right, so do you want to finish up just overall thoughts on the game and how you think we're transitioning into next year? Yeah, I, I just I was a little bit down on some of the play calls. The RPO really made me mad. Going forward on fourth and chasing points there, which could have been three more points on the board. I thought that was a, a something that has continually bit us, you know, in in a bad way throughout the season. I wasn't that down on Josh. I thought he actually had a pretty good performance overall. I'm just worried. I'm not worried. I'm just curious of what his passing development is going to be. I feel a lot more confident in his running ability and his decision-making in certain instances, at least in that game. But I'm I'm not so sure that his passing hasn't regressed as we've moved throughout the season instead of progressed. And I understand that might be defensive schemes against him, but it didn't, it didn't seem great. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. Yeah. I just feel like people... There was a lot of malicious stuff being said about Josh on Twitter and screw this guy he stinks. Like we need to you know, get Quincy Patterson going for next year. And that very well may happen. I'm not saying it's not going to happen that hooker or Patterson couldn't be the starter next year, but I tweeted out something that Fuente's previous star pupils in Lynch and Andy Dalton, they improved year over year in every statistical category as a passing quarterback. I don't know if Josh is that caliber of those guys, but I still think he's going to improve. I, quarterbacks absolutely can get more accurate and improve greatly over the career. Look no further than Tyrod Taylor, Brian Randall. They were terrible early in their career as passers. Three years later, everyone loves him. And that could be exactly what happens to Josh Jackson. Fuente has a history of making these guys improve. So it stinks. And I know you hate to see the inaccuracies and missing wide open guys down the field. But he will improve. He will get significantly better. If he doesn't become our starter, that's probably really good news because it means one of the other guys is really, really good. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean to, uh, first of all, I'm not trying to give credence to anything that was said on Twitter or judging Josh Jackson. I'm taking it from the standpoint of, do I think he had a good day or not? Right? You have bad days. And Mm -hmm. I don't think he had, I think he had a really great day in making things happen with his feet and extending drives and getting first downs. I'm just saying that on that particular day, his passing is, was not, was not great. I'm not trying to bring into the, uh, into consideration what's going to happen next year, mostly because I'm just never that interested in, you know, pontificating about who's going to be the starter next year. I'm more interested in whether we have a good coach that's going to pick the right starter next year. So I think Josh, he's not going to regress. That's not going to happen. He's too smart. He's a pretty headsy player. He's very calm, collected. I see him on the sidelines. I have a lot of confidence in his ability, his smarts, his ability to be a leader of the team. I don't see him regressing. If anything, he's going to get better. And to say that he is not what we need in this team, he's a freshman. Like anybody that thinks they're in a position to make that determination right now is is a is just that's just not true. Right, right. Let's see what happens. Let's see how he develops. He's got a full off season and I think he could be a magnificent starter once again next year and be even better and take us to places that we, you know, never really expected to be. Um 
but I, I don't know that that's going to be the case. I just think yeah. on one day he had an okay day. And, and in this particular game, you, you're talking about a game where we're missing our number one receiver in Cam Phillips. Sean Savoy, clearly dealing with an injury, wasn't in there on a lot of plays. He was in there early, had a drop. I think he registered one yard rushing. Uh, a couple other plays I saw him out there, but essentially we were playing with our third receiver as our one as our number one, and then you know the other guys filling in behind him. So that's a that's a tough ask, you know, <laughs> that you you lose your top receiver, you lose your top yardage running back prior to the game in McMillan. I think he played about as well as could be expected. He could have been a little bit more accurate. Uh, the loss stinks, uh, I, and it just stings worse because of the way it all unfolded, because it did seem winnable. We realized that we could have competed with that team, and a few egregious mistakes really cost us the game. Yeah, and I the only thing, just to kind of, and this will be my last point, is the only determination that I've made about Josh Jackson is I do think he can improve on the long passes hitting people in stride. He's continuously throughout the season consistently missed those passes. That is an area that of my opinion of him, because I don't want us to make it seem like we're just waffling and saying he's a freshman and, oh, he's going to learn. Something that he really needs to improve on if we're going to really open up this offense and take the top off at times where we're running the ball and then all of a sudden we go with a deep pass. Most of his passes that he completes that are long are typically short, and it has a receiver coming back, slowing up, coming back, and then winning the battle one-on-one to catch the pass. That pass, and I'm not comparing him to Mason Rudolph in one way at all, that pass to to Washington down the center in stride, you know, three yards beyond the defensive back, um, he can't make that pass right now. And uh, that's an area he that can't he can't make it consistently. No, right. Consistently. Cannot. And that's, that's what's going to separate him from being very good to being, you know, taking that next step is being able to make those passes and they're not going to come up often. That's why you got to take advantage of the opportunities. But with my eye, that's the only thing that I can see where right now he's not demonstrating the skill set. Other than that, I think he's, you know, young and he's developing. That's it. Yeah. And the receiving core is developing too, and I was encouraged by them the last few games. They only made me more encouraged after the bowl game. I like what I see from Grimsley and Kuma, and even Murphy is coming along. It's Patterson. It's nice. It's nice to see these guys developing. Josh will have weapons going forward. If you can work on that, you know, really the longer passes and hitting the guys in stride, his game will come together. I've seen him make those passes on occasion. We've seen him drop in some nice dimes, uh, but it's just going to have to be more consistent. Yeah. All right. I think that covers the bowl game. Let's take a beer break and then do a little bit about our guys leaving for the NFL. Robbie, what are you drinking? So I am drinking uh, the Forearm Smash. Uh, it's a dry hopped uh, double IPA from Oliver, Oliver Brewing Company. Um, which is, I guess, been around since 1993. It might be the most difficult can to read that I've ever uh, come across <laughs> because it's so shiny that I can't even see what's on there. The graphics are pretty cool. It's from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I've maybe had a beer or two from Oliver. I've heard the name before, but I was at the store. I decided to pick it up. It's pretty good. Uh, I would say it's your run-of-the-mill double 
IPA, a lot of hop, not much citrus, very little, a, a little bit of a malty kind of uh, flavor to it, but more often than not, like you get with, you know, nine times out of 10 with the doubles, it's, um, it's kind of exactly what I expected. Not a, a huge flavor profile, just more hoppiness than anything else, but it's good. I'm having an Aslan. This is my first Aslan beer. I've never had one on the podcast or otherwise. And I have to give a shout out to Billy McCullough. He came to our live recording at Downtown Crown and brought me this beer. So I've been saving it to drink on the podcast. It's the Master of Karate double IPA. Their most most famous IPA that Aslan has put out there. It's really good. It's very smooth and 8.4%. Like it's... It's seriously alcoholic, but you would never know. It drinks just like a single IPA. Not too hoppy. I really, really like it. Uh, this, Like I said, this is my first Aslan one. and I know you've had a bunch of their beers, even a couple on the podcast. But uh, how, what do you think of this one? Uh, I've never actually gotten the Master of Karate because they do rotating beers. Oh, you okay. can, and you have to go. Their whole thing is you have to go on Thursdays and wait in line and pick up the beers. So I've done that, and they've never had the... Either it's sold out before I got to the front of the line. Uh, I've heard great things about it. All their other ones are... They're a New England IPA shop, mostly. That's what they do. I actually yeah, have... It's, it's the hazy New England-style IPA, but it, it's it's a good one. Yeah. I really like it. And I've actually had a couple of their like stouts, and some of, they're starting to branch out a little bit, and they they can make... I know everybody makes fun of people that just do the kind of New England style IPA. They can make some other beers. Some of their stouts are really good. So I would suggest if you ever have any of them, branch out a little bit and just don't go with the typical stuff. But I've heard great things about the Master of Karate. All right, let's talk about uh, Tremaine, Terrell, and Timmy Settle leaving early. And I think of those three guys, Tim is the biggest surprise, especially from... The beginning of the season. We did not see this coming at the end. We could have seen both Edmonds brothers leaving at the end of the year. But Tim Settle, being a little bit more of a developmental guy, having to get his weight down and stuff, we were waiting to see his impact this season. And we saw it. He was awesome this year. And in retrospect, it does make sense. He's got the size. He's got quick feet. But it's disappointing as hell, man. I was really hoping to have Tim back next year. I thought him and Ricky were, I I did, maybe I'm naive. I really didn't see it coming and maybe I'm an idiot, but I probably should have um, seen it coming, but it it blew me out of the water. I figured the announcements I was going to see were Tremaine and Terrell and then we're not done yet. I think they have until the 15th. So uh, Adonis maybe. Um, So when it settle came across, I was pretty blown away. Um, I, you know, going from, I never like to think about what people, what's going on in people's heads. I don't, I don't really care. You know, if you had, you know, say the NFL is your dream job, right. And it's some players dream job. Say you got offered your dream job and it was whether you were going to leave school early and take your dream job working for Google, but you had an offer or you were going to stay you know, if that's what you always wanted to do, then, you know, hats off to you. Go, go take your dream job. I mean, and that's what the NFL is for a lot of people. You know, they grow up, they have been playing football their entire lives. That's what the expectation is. So, um, I can't be anything but happy for people that get a chance to fulfill that for settle. Uh, 
if I can't help, and this is my personal opinion with no whatsoever kind of backing up of this, I mentioned it before, I'll mention it again. The shots that he took to the knees in the Georgia Tech game were scary, all three of them. He came off the sideline twice, and he was on the ground for the third one. Then in the Oklahoma State game, he took another yeah. shot to the knee, and he that one they took a TV timeout for. He was on the ground the entire time. Um, if it was, guess what? I'm not a I'm not, I'm not an amazing defensive tackle like he is, and I would never uh, uh, even be able to think that I could imagine what he's going through in those situations. But if that kind of stuff's going to risk your ability to take even just a snap in the NFL, and that's your dream is to take a snap in the NFL, that would spook me a little bit. And that all happened in the last what? I guess it would be three three games of the year, four like games of the year. Like a month, yeah, the last yeah. month of the season. And, and and you're right. He he was taking some shots, and that's the thing that can derail it because everyone can say, you can go back next year, improve your draft stock. And if he were to stay healthy and come back next year, I don't doubt that he would go higher in the draft and probably make more than double the money in his first four years of his rookie contract. But I can't guarantee that he will stay healthy. Like I, So, listen, he may or may not get drafted. I assume that he will, e- even if it's late. I assume that he will because when people see the tape and he does this combine, I feel like he'll put enough out there that he'll get drafted. Uh, but if he were to stay and put up the same production as this year, it could be first round, second round, third round. He's probably not going that high this time. But he's still going to get paid. And like you said, if it's his dream, then he should go. Where it puts us as a team for next year, it stinks. I, I mean, we only had those two guys playing defensive tackle this year. We saw a little bit of uh, Hewitt. We saw a little bit of Burke, maybe uh, some Jimmy Taylor in there. But uh, we were thin at defensive tackle. And now it's going to get a little thinner. On the plus side, everyone else is coming back. All the defensive tackles are coming back, as thin as that position may be. All of the defensive ends are coming back. So if you look at it from you know, 10,000 feet, this should show improvement. Honestly, even with losing Settle, you could say we could potentially see improvement on the D-line as a whole because the defensive ends should be improved, but you're going to take maybe a little bit of a step back at defensive tackle. People are worried about the depth. Our, our buddy Joe, who we talk about all this stuff with from the key play, He's he's really worried about defensive tackle. He doesn't, you know, maybe see uh, the guys developing as quickly. I'm not sure, but and, and it's a valid worry. I'm not as worried about defensive line as a position we'll talk about in a minute with Tremaine Edmonds walking out the door. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, I well, I don't want to I don't want to preview because we're about to get into Tremaine and, and Terrell. I think it's the most uh, important loss that we took. And, and this is why and that I have a different thought process and I'm thinking about it a little differently than you are, is it puts a governor on the upside of this defense more than any other position. So I, I had aspirations next year of Settle and Ricky coming back and being arguably the best one-two punch in the entire nation. Like, like up there in yeah. the top, like, and that's not like, I'm not exaggerating probably in like the one to three top defensive tackle combo next year in the nation, which would have elevated this defense that opens up everything. If you have a disruptive and they were this year, if you have a disruptive 
defensive tackle combo. Look at Clemson and what they do. I mean, it changes the whole defense. It changes what the linebackers do. It changes what it changes what has to happen in the secondary because now the quarterback's feeling pressure and they're not making the same reads and passes that they are. It makes their job easier. Um, so I guess my point is I think it's impactful because I had aspirations for it to be just on a whole different level. And I think a lot of people feel as though Ricky is the more disruptive of the duo. Um, and, you know, the, thank God we got him back, which is fair. Totally get it. But I do think that having that mammoth being of Tim Sim settle in there distracts a lot of the offensive line and focuses a lot of the pressure towards Tim Settle and opened up things for, for, for Walker in a way that, you know, may, may not happen otherwise. So I think it puts a governor in much more of a way than any other position. That's kind of, that's tough. Yeah. Instead of a less optimistic view, like you just said, is that not that the defensive line will still improve over this year. It's that the upside could have been huge. Right. Exactly. And now, and now it might just only be incrementally better the same or maybe even a little bit worse. And that, and that is the bummer of it. It, it, it stinks. It is not good news. It, it, it's unfortunate that Tim's leaving early, you know, but that's his decision and it's, it's all good. Hewitt, Burke, Fullwood, Taylor, maybe Mahota moves from defensive end to the inside. Once he's done rehabbing that ACL, we got glaze and Porcher. Cam good, I think is uh, coming in the program and Joe Kane. We're going to have to find some defensive tackles to get in that, you know, that starter and that two deep in there. There's a lot of candidates here. I, I don't doubt that Hewitt or Burke or Fullwood or Taylor could take that next step. Mahoda at one point was a decent DT. I know he's had injuries over his career and he's going to be a little hampered by that, but he could give us some valuable snaps at defensive tackle. And I, I'm just not as uh, doom and gloom about that position as as some people. I fully understand what you mean, taking it from an elite potential to just a very good potential like this year. But yeah, and also just to so we don't have to wait to the end of the segment. I'm also super hyped for settle. Like I I don't I'm I always look at this in terms of what does it mean for the team, recognizing that I'm always happy for the players. Right, I'm like happy. All these guys are getting to go. Yeah, it can, and it can their, be both. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I don't get to like objectively. And, and this is one of the things that pisses me off. And this might be a little bit of a rant. Is it, it seems as though whether it's message boards, posts, or Twitter or whatever, it's like one camp or the other. Either you like write a post that's, man, I'm so happy for you. I hope you do awesome at the next level, or you write a post uh, uh, that, and everybody's like like, you know, responds negatively for that, whatever their opinion is, or somebody writes a post or a Twitter message or whatever it is with their opinion. And it's like, man, this really causes challenges for depth next year. And it's like, oh, how are you going to hate on a guy for going to get paid? And it's like, dude, just separate the damn arguments for once. Like you can can be be mad about it and you can be happy for him. too. Right. And I can be like, I can be thinking about what's the team going to look like. You know why? Because I'm a Virginia tech fan. You know what? I'm not a fan of the Colts. I'm not a fan of the Patriots. I don't watch (laughs) NFL. I'm a, I'm evaluating what Virginia tech on a does on a day to day basis. Like that's why we have a podcast. So I can be both. I can be happy for him. That he's going to fulfill his career. I can also give a shit less what's happening in the NFL. And I'm going to come back and look at what it means for the team. 
And it's like one of my biggest pet peeves is like people just take these stances that you can be both. You can look at the team and see what it looks like next year and still be happy for those guys going to fulfill their dreams. Absolutely. So let's talk about Tremaine Edmonds because he could arguably be the number one linebacker taken in this draft. Probably not. There's some other guys that are that are probably going to go before him, but he's probably going to be the first guy drafted of all the Virginia Tech guys eligible for this draft, which is quite a few, honestly. We could have a good number of our guys drafted. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Tremaine's athleticism, his speed, his ability to diagnose plays, versatility, like he can do everything, and he's just enormous. (laughs) Uh, Like that's really, I mean, the size and speed is what they're drafting on to begin with. So it would be awesome for Tech. If you're going to lose a guy, it'd be nice if he goes in the first round. I still think Tremaine's a first or second round guy, even at worst case. Yeah, I think he'll go. This is the cynic in me just because of what happens to us in drafts. I think he'll go second round. Um because yeah, you know, we talked about this the other day. Speaking of prior conversations, I thought not taking Kendall in the first round was the stupidest thing. He slipped to the third round, I think. It was early third round. Not taking Kendall Fuller early on was the most asinine thing I'd ever seen. Oh, by the way, he just got ranked by Pro Football Focus as the seventh best cornerback in the entire uh, country in the NFL. I think Tremaine should go higher than that just because his um his measurables are just out of this world. He's always in the backfield. He's always able to make those, you know, 10 yard runs to make a tackle on the slant pass or whatever. He's always there. And it's just, it's amazing. Uh, even during the Oklahoma state game, once I knew I rewatched it, once I knew he was going to the NFL and I rewatched him and what he's going to look like, he just has such a good IQ for where he's going. And he's such a physical player like there are no tackles that are getting away from that man. When his hands are on you, you're going down every single time. Um, so he, I, I think he should be a late first round pick. I think he'll slip to the second round just because Virginia Tech is there's a there's a stigma and there's a reputation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but you look at our guys last year. Thought Bucky might go in the third. Thought Isaiah might go in the third. We didn't have anyone drafted before the sixth round. Our first drafted player was Chuck Clark. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, the guys, I don't know what it is about tech, but they tend to drop. But it works that way. Eli Apple, who's playing for the Giants, has been a disaster, and he went before Kendall Fuller did yeah. in the draft. And that was the year that uh, Ohio State had, uh, I don't know, you made another numbers. It was something ridiculous. It was like 13. Like nine guys. Or yeah, it yeah. was like nine players in the first and second round went. Yeah. And Eli Apple was like the ninth one. And he got drafted right before in the same position, Kendall Fuller. And I'm sitting there like slapping my head going, that's just because he played for Ohio State. This is insane that the talent is there. And now look what's happening. So We did have, Ken, uh, what was it, Kyle Fuller go number 14 overall where he like flew up the draft boards that's the only time i can remember in recent history that a tech guy like went before we thought they would go and he he really shot up and he's still playing well in the nfl as for terrell edmonds uh, this is another one that i'm not sure where he's gonna go uh, as far as his draft position i think he will get drafted they've got the lineage you know their dad played in the nfl They've got Trey, who's on the Saints, and he's got this other brother. Like people, 
and NFL evaluators, scouts, they look at that bloodline. It, it happens all the time. And when you see that talent, and then you look at especially Terrell's tape, not from this past year, but the year before, you know, hard hitter, decent in coverage. He would he could be a good, strong safety in the NFL. So I think he'll be drafted for sure. It might just be later. The good news is we have solid depth at safety. We have guys that can fill in. Obviously, I'd love to have him back, but it's not nearly as big a loss as Settle and Tremaine. Yeah, I totally agree. I think he's going to get drafted, but I also, I probably have the least amount of read on him out of the, you know, uh, out of the trio is the best way to put it from an NFL perspective. Uh, If seeing what happened last year, what's a good way to put this? Chuck Clark was pretty good, right? And I could see him going around when a Chuck Clark would go. Does that make sense? Like, I, yeah, I no, think I, I, that, that was uh, mid sixth round, right? Something like that. I think that's probably the right spot if he gets drafted, uh, about where he would go. I think if he had come back and had a good season, he may improve that by, um, you know, some measure. But uh, I, I think it was um, a fifty. It was a fifty-fifty ball on what he him going back. I think there's just as much likelihood that he goes undrafted seeing what happened last year and how how deep the NFL draft pool is getting. And I think that's what you're seeing is the overall athleticism of these players is getting so deep that it's... And so many guys decide to go early. Yeah. I mean, every year you see more and more juniors announcing and every year you see more and more guys going undrafted who have left early. But it just makes the pool that much bigger. Yeah. So I'll ask you this question. I see eight guys that are either seniors or leaving early for tech that could be drafted. Uh, We had nine guys drafted in 2006. We had eight drafted in 2008. And keep in mind, we were still recruiting at a very high level in the early 2000s when these guys eventually came to maturity and left school. So we haven't had any more than three up until last year. And last year we had four guys, but it was all six round or beyond. It was uh, Clark, Bucky, Sam Rogers, and Isaiah Ford were drafted last year. All round six and seven. This year, I think we could have as many as eight drafted. And we got Tremaine, Terrell, and Settle, Motua Puaka, Stroman, Faison, and then the two I really think will be drafted, Teller and Cam. That's a lot of guys. If I, if you had to guess, who do you think gets drafted second? I think Tremaine will probably go first of all the Hokies. Yeah, Teller's got to be two, right? Yeah, I mean, his, but after that, it gets his even stats tougher. Are, his stats the past two years, yeah. at least. I trust the pro football focus guys. They don't really have an objective other than just watching every single play and just grading people out. And they do it for NFL and they do it for college. So there's a bit of a consistency there. He grades out in the past two years as well as almost you know, anybody in the country um, mm-hmm. from from that position. So I think he has to be two. So if Tremaine and then Teller, third is is really tough because it could be Settle, it could be Stroman, it could be Cam Phillips, it could be Faison. I think it'll probably be Stroman. I think that he was an an amazing corner this year. And he's not the biggest guy, but he could play nickel in the NFL for sure. 
And yeah. his ability, his coverage ability, and just playmaking ability in general, maybe someone wants to use him as a punt returner too. Like he could, he can help a team on special teams as well. You have to keep that in mind. So I think Strowman will probably be drafted third, but that's a lot of talent that that from our team that could go into the NFL. And that helps you from a recruiting perspective. So hopefully we want all eight of these guys to get drafted for sure. Yeah, I hope everybody um, does. Uh, my yeah. concern, Strowman, I think, yeah, I, I think you have a lot of good points there. I My concern out of all those people, um, Moto, Moto, I think, could get drafted. It, He's just, it's, he's kind of in a weird role, like in what he played and how, like over the three years, um, and basically our success of our linebackers in the NFL has not been the, (laughs) that's not exactly what we're touting on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, the one thing about Mo too, I think that helps him in the pros is that he's a good coverage linebacker and with how much passing goes on these days, that's a valuable skill. And he's got great size and great speed. Now, he doesn't always play as big as his size. We've seen him get pushed back in the hole too many times. But on a combine day, Motua Puaka could thrive. Yeah. And I think that will help his draft stock. Yeah, my biggest concern is for Cam, by far. Um, after seeing what happened... Do you think he'll get drafted in a higher position than Isaiah Ford? Well, that's my concern, right? So <laughs> their their build is... It, it's true, or, or I mean, uh, Cam's a little shorter than than maybe Ford just was. a little, yeah. Um, there is a tendency, and this has happened ever since the NFL started going to tight end sets and using them in the passing game, is to go um, with height because I mean it's obviously important and it's something that can be a differentiator, especially when you're trying to go up for jump balls. I think on top of the on top of Isaiah Ford and what he did uh, in the combine that kind of hurt him last year, I think his measurables hurt him a lot. Like if you look at a guy like look at what Washington looked like in that game versus what Cam usually looks like, like he's just tall. He's big. He's just a target out there and he can still move pretty quick. He's not the fastest guy out there. I just don't know with Cam what sets him apart. Right for Isaiah, I think his route running, his ability to cut. I, I, mm. You're right. I I get it because he's not super fast. He's not, uh, you know, super tall or anything like that. But he has a little something. I, I yeah. you know, and I was obviously super impressed with him this year. And at the end of last year, I thought he really came on. You've loved Cam for years. You were talking about how he's was going to blow up last year. I love and, him. Believe me, that's not it. It's what I'm thinking about it from the NFL perspective now. I'm yeah. done with the co- like. There is no doubt he, he needs, needs to, to have a good combine. Right. Let, let's put it that way. Like because Ford, we saw like Cam needs to run well and he needs to catch the goddamn ball at the combine because that's what killed Isaiah. Um, Isaiah still he had an injuries riddled season bad. this year. Still rooting for him to go forward with the Dolphins and and do good things upcoming. But if Cam gets on a team, I think he can. He's a hungry kid. I really think he can. You know, he battled through that injury this year. He would have been even more amazing without that injury. Um, and he was already really awesome. So and my hopefully point he'll is, he'll go. Yeah, my point is not whether he's. My point is is that the NFL is so weird about like grasping onto these things, yeah. whether it's size right. and all of that. I'm just wondering whether they're sitting in the draft room and like, like nobody's like, hey, 
this is the biggest guy out there. This is the fastest guy out there. This is the best. Like, you know, maybe they say he's the best route runner out there. Like there, there, there is things that happen in that room in the war room when they're picking players that, um, I just hope after seeing, I thought Ford was going to go higher. I mean, he was yeah. an exceptional wide receiver and he didn't, which makes me very skeptical these days about the draft. I guess the yeah, best way. Cause they are, you're right. They are similar. Neither one is elite speed or elite size. And, I think you are right. That's what's going against him. I just hope they see his playmaking ability as as a reason to to take him. I hope so. Let's let's do another beer break and then just do a little bit of uh, basketball before we sign off. So, Pete, what are you uh, having over there? I'm having another IPA. This one is from Vault Brewing, and it's out of Yardley, Pennsylvania. And I'm drinking the Five Seas IPA by them. It's a 6.4 single IPA. Really darker in color than some of the other IPAs we've had recently. Uh, still a little hazy. Can't quite see through it, but it's it's got like a brown color rather than a uh, than like that light tan color that you see in a lot of the New Englands. But Vault makes a lot of good beers. I've had a couple of their their uh, their stuff, and like I said, they're from Yardley, PA. They make a good coffee beer. They make a good uh, a saison. I think I've had from them, but I would recommend Vault to anyone. And the Five Seas IPA is a very easy drinking six point four percent IPA. That is my absolute wheelhouse, my favorite type of beer. So I would recommend to any anyone the Vault Five Seas IPA. What do you have, Robbie? Uh, a new one that was at the uh, the store. It's it's either forefront. I think it's forefront. Uh, the four is above the front. I was going to go front four, but uh, I think that I have it the right way. Um, it's uh, Victory Brewing out of, I guess it's uh, Downingtown, Downingtown PA. Pennsylvania, uh, up in your stomping grounds. That's so, right, man. I don't think, have you ever been there? I've been there. I've been to one of their other locations, uh, and I've been to Downingtown a bunch of times, uh, maybe a couple years ago. But yeah, Victory is everywhere up here. I got like, four or five different victory beers in my fridge right now at any given time i'm having victory constantly so it's i'm a big fan i have not had this one though yeah this one i think is new because i always keep an eye out for what's new at the store so that's why i grabbed it uh it's a five and a half percenter so it's uh if if six and a half is kind of run on the mill this is on the lighter side I think a session is technically like 5% for an IPA or somewhere around there. So it's approaching uh, a session IPA. It's good. It's got a little bit of citrus and, and pine in it. Uh, it's a little kind of more earthy as they describe it on the bottle. I can see that. But usually when I, I read that on a label, it just means it's kind of a uh, a more kind of middle of the road IPA versus something that would be a little bit more either really hoppy or uh more i guess new england style to had a lot of the citra hops and things like that so it's pretty good it's i'll have to have a little bit more of it to see if i would get it again i would not um you know go to the grave on it but it's pretty good all right let's talk some buzzgetball man we uh we've done a little bit better the last couple games but the acc slate got off to a rough start and i'll say since that kentucky game where the team played well, but ended up coming home with the loss. Ever since then, it's like we've been playing with a hangover. Syracuse, UVA, those games were awful. We got destroyed by UVA. I mean, that, <laughs> call it, that was bad. 
and it, it, in fact, it we was made incredibly it look, bad. We made it look better at the towards the end of the game. It could have been even worse. I, and we just weren't shooting at all. Like we could not make a three against Syracuse or UVA in our first three ACC games. Uh, we were shooting twenty five percent from three, and we knew this team, being as small as we are, is going to live and die by the three point shot. Uh, we really, really needed that victory against Pitt to stop the bleeding of those first two games. And it sucks because that UVA game, I wish it had been a little bit later because it was the home game. Because now our next game against UVA is going to be in JPJ, which they're currently, what, number three in the country? Yeah, they're playing not, really well. They really are. And and that's a team that I guess two or three years ago, they had a really, really good recruiting class. But we were just talking about how our recruiting has improved and, in fact, gotten even better than UVA. But the Kyle Guy class that's currently there, that was a really good class. They had like four top 100 guys, and they're all young, and they're all playing at an extremely high level right now for them. I wish the home game had been later because we just we were at that point in the season where we are in a lull, and we just got destroyed. If you remember last year, right around this time, we got throttled by NC State. That one was on the road, but it, it still happened. We got beat really bad by Florida State at the same time last year. Maybe this is just kind of something that Buzz and the guys go through. They have to have like some really, really bad ACC games, and then all of a sudden they start competing in every single one. But Pitt is not good, but they helped us get back on track. And the Wake game last night, we looked like our old selves again. Yeah, I think... We talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a little longer ago, is we're relatively um, one-dimensional, I guess, in the way yes. that we play, and it's always going to be that way. And that includes the way that we play defense, the way that we play offense, the way that we play in transition. Uh, it's not going to look much different, and people are going to, certain teams are going to be able to scheme against that. And... You know, you come out and, you know, we have teams that are coming up against us that are not shooting the three ball very well and then come out and have record nights every single time against us uh, in three-point shooting. And we've yep, seen and that. that happened last year too. Exactly. Uh, so I think I, I think that this is a can be exciting team. Um, it's But I do think that we're one-dimensional. And I yeah. think with the talent there is in the ACC – whether it be coaching uh, or the actual you know player talent is going to make it tough for us because we can't change things up that much in the way that we go about our business. It's kind of the same thing every game that we come out and some teams are going to be really good at defending it and some teams are going to be like Wake Forest, not so good at defending it. Yeah, just to talk about last night's game just a little bit, we opened up a really big lead at the half, especially right at the end. We scored a few baskets, had a 15-point lead at halftime, held on to win 83-75. Looked like they might have been trying to give it away there at the end. Got a little nervous, but one of the keys I thought was that Bibbs was finally making some threes last game. He was struggling terribly in the first three ACC games. I think he was making like maybe 10% of his threes. He went 50% last night. I think he was 3 of 6 and Hill, again, Hill has been a breath of fresh air from three. He still makes some bonehead plays, 
But I'm coming around on Ahmed Hill. His athleticism, I always thought he'd be a more lockdown defender and just better. But his shot from three, it's consistently falling game after game. And so I, I have to have to give him kudos for that. And even Blackshear has been shooting well from three in ACC play so far. We shot 12 of 28 last night. We're up to 43% from three-point from three point land. And, uh, you know, that's what we're more used to. It's high highs and low lows for this team. Uh, a little bit of feast or famine with the three-point shooting. But what we were seeing against Syracuse and UVA, those are two incredibly good defensive teams. And they just weren't allowing us to get into our game whatsoever. Against some of the lesser teams who don't play defense at such a high level, I think we'll have more success. And we saw that the last two games. As for where we are in the season, 13-4. and four, We have 14 games left. Seven home, seven away. Perfectly even. But it is a brutal, brutal remaining slate of games. We have precisely one home game left against a team outside the top 40 in the Kempom. Just one home game left. And that's the NC State game. They're 71. They're still a top 100 team. I mean, there are no easy games. The easiest game, quote-unquote, is Georgia Tech, who is like 105 in the Kempom. And that one's on the road. So be happy we won that Wake Forest game because that was virtually a must-win. I, I Even though it was on the road and Wake Forest, they're – they're 76th in their own right in the Ken Palm, top 100. But we needed that one. If we had started off one in three, it would be really hard to see any way we make the NCAA tournament. That was a huge win last night. Yeah, I was a little bit concerned about Buzz the other night said expectations have kind of elevated with this team. Yeah, yeah. I and I almost threw up on my monitor. I at didn't the moment. like it at all. Um, I didn't like it at all. Because that's what he wanted. He came to Virginia Tech because the the expectations would be elevated, and they should be. Uh, he that that is what I would call. It's year four. Yeah, there should be expectations. Well, and it's overthinking it because if you don't feel like, all right, we have a one dimensional team. We don't have any bigs. Like we're gonna have to be playing the same type of offense. We're not gonna be able to play, you know, the type of defense that we want. Got it. All right, we're all level set. We all understand what we have. So then have fun with it. Go out and play a slate like you're saying. We have seven and seven coming up of these games and go screw up other people's seasons. That's what like teams do. If you look at college football, which is how what I'm like more accustomed to, college football programs that are not on the up and up, that are not a Clemson, that are not blue bloods, that you know, they're they're ranked, you know, 93 out of 132, whatever the number is. The coaches that can inspire those types of teams, you know, the coaches that can pull, um, you know, what what just happened in a 13-year-old season under Scott Frost is they just said, screw it. We're just going to go mess up other people's seasons. Well, do that and go have fun with it. Don't overthink right. it. And if you don't feel like you have the talent, then don't come out and say expectations have gone up. Just don't say anything and then just tell your team, listen, you know, we're going up against one of the hardest, <laughs> one of the hardest conferences in college basketball that you're going to see. These teams are elite, but you know what we can do? We can still make the tournament by going up and screwing up people's nights and playing our game. And I think that's a better message. Um, yeah. And to your point about the brutalness of the ACC this year and the, the conference in general, the, 
Bracketology from Joe Lenardi last week had nine ACC teams in the tournament, and we were not one of them. <laughs> I'm not even sure we were the next one out. We might have been two teams out, but that's how good the team, the conference is as a whole. Like There are literally nine teams that have better resumes than us as of right now. So it's a really, really tough year to be down a big and down a shooter in tie outlaw. And so we're we're doing our best, and I was happy to see the progress we made against Pitt and Wake. The Wake game, honestly, the way we came out and started that game, I did not expect it from the way we've been looking. But it is how we looked up to and including the Kentucky game. That was our game, and we played it last night. So I was really happy to see that. The next couple games, we have Louisville on the road, Going to be a challenging game. They're 12-4. and four. They're Louisville. Of course, Rick Pitino isn't coaching that team this year due to extenuating circumstances that most people are aware of. The weather? Um, Is that what you mean? The weather? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. There might have been some, some money exchanging hands. I'm not exactly sure. But Louisville still in their house. That's going to be a really tough game. They just beat Florida State. And uh, they're 37th in the Ken Palm. And then we have Florida State coming to Blacksburg the following weekend on a Saturday when the students are back. That is going to be a huge game. And I wouldn't say must win, but that would be a really, really nice win for Virginia Tech to win that home game against Florida State. Can the Florida schools get any taller? Either Florida State or Miami? Is everybody seven foot? Like, and they're like... So and and they just keep recruiting down there. I guess it doesn't hurt that it's beautiful and sunny and warm all the time, but you're absolutely right. Miami and Florida State, the bigs that they get, especially last year, Florida State had like four guys that were seven feet. And tall. so did Miami. We went into that game and I was like, there is no chance we can win this. Like they can just block without even like jumping. There's not even gonna be a game here. And if we end up getting smoked. The nice thing about the last couple of weeks, too, is that our strength of schedule has come up by playing UVA, Syracuse, and Wake Forest. We are in the top 300, finally, in our strength of schedule from Ken Palm, Sagarin, and RPI. All of our strength of schedules are uh, in the top 300, just barely by the Ken Palm, but we're like 215 in the RPI in terms of SOS. And... The Lenardi's RPI has us at 43 in the country. He does his own kind of RPI metric, which is a little bit better than the actual one. Um, The basketball power index from ESPN has us at 30, which is the highest of any ranking. That's probably a little overzealous. Sagarin has us at 41, and Ken Palm has us at 47. So right now we're a top 50 team by by the resume and what we've done so far on the court. And uh, if we can... Maybe knock off a couple of these teams coming up. I mean, Louisville's a winnable game. They're a good team, no doubt about it. But even on the road, we nearly beat them last year in their house. That's a winnable game. And Florida State coming to Blacksburg, if we play our game and, you know, Bibbs and Hill are making their threes, that's a winnable game as well. So, And that's the thing about the ACC is you're going to have to beat some of these good teams. If you – all of them are super good. So if you don't beat them, you're just going to go, you know, two and 16 in conference. Like you have to beat some of these really good teams. Yeah. And I think it really just comes down. It's, it's how I like it. The number one thing, if you had to look at our program and see what, 
um, Buzz has really instilled. It's the passing game and the ability to spread the ball around the perimeter is what it, it's almost a uniqueness to how fast we can spread it around the perimeter and know where the ball's getting to go an open shot. Um, and when that's not working and we're just trying to take, you know, come up and take it, take a three point shot. It, it's that is going to fail every single time. If we're not spreading it around the perimeter to get the three, um, you can almost tell every single game whether we're going to win or lose just based on that, how ball, how well the ball is flowing around the outside. How well we do down the stretch will totally depend on kind of who continues to develop throughout the rest of the season. Are we going to see more improvement from Nikhil Alexander-Walker? He's been good and bad in some of the games. He's kind of a hit or miss right now, which you expect from a freshman. Blackshear, I mean, he had 31 points against Pitt and was making some amazing plays in the lane. He's gotten better throughout this season, I think. And if he continues to improve, that could be huge for us. Robinson, as a leader, I think needs to step up. We need an alpha dog. We don't have Seth Allen. We don't have Zach Lede. And that leadership is really what's missing. Does Robinson continue to lead? Does Hill start to lead? Chris Clark, who I think has made modest improvements this year in his all-around game. He can't shoot for shit, but... He's an all-around really, really good player. The development will will take us as far as uh, as we can go this year because we need some guys to you know up their games in ACC play. All right, man, are we done? Is that it for the podcast today? Yeah, we've uh, officially entered the off season. Dun oh, dun dun. We got off season football stuff. So what? That means signing day, which we already went over some of that, but me and you are probably gonna watch a little high school film and then the next month and then talk about signing day in early February. We got spring practice. Oh, and we're um, we're pretty much a consensus top fifteen team because nobody knows that our offensive line is gone <laughs> and we just lost yeah. three of our best defensive players. The so, two early rankings. Yeah. So uh I think we're going to try and get, you know, one or two people on during the off season and let them know that we're ranked number 14 in the nation, uh, even though they won't know the better of it and try and get their national opinion on the Virginia Tech program, which is, it's pretty high. I mean, let's, let's, you know, take a step back. Fuente, if he, if we pulled off that game, 10 win seasons, your first two years in a program is about as rare as you get. Um, we went 10 the first year, we went nine the second year. That's, you know, go talk to Nebraska if you want to go pee on that. And they got national championships in their court. So um, another great season. Uh, We wish it could have been better. And I have high expectations for for both programs moving forward, both basketball and for football uh, from here on out. I do too. And I think some of the, the early announcements have clearly punched us in the gut a little bit in terms of our 2018 expectations. But it hasn't slowed the national prognosticators down because 14 on ESPN and their two early rankings, 10 on SI, I think Athlon had us at 15 or 16. Those will probably come down as the season gets closer. And next year is going to be really interesting. And as we go through the spring, we'll talk about, like, could we be a 7-5 and five team in 2018? It's possible. Could we be 9-3 and three again? Also possible. It, it's a... It's a big swing season for the program, and that's that's going to be fun to talk about as the offseason goes on, as we see who's going to be starting at those linebacker positions, defensive tackle, on the offensive line where we're losing a bunch of guys. 
Josh Jackson's improvement. So there's a lot of stuff that is of interest this offseason. This is my hook. I have my thoughts on whether or not we'll be seven and five or or ten and two, but it looks like you're just gonna have to tune back in during the next <laughs> during the what next seven months. Absolutely. Because we yeah, we're gonna do some signing day stuff in early February. We're gonna do some basketball stuff in late February, early March. And if we make the tournament Absolutely, we'll be doing a tournament preview and all that kind of stuff. So don't ignore your feeds to the podcast over the winter months because we're going to be hitting you at least once a month, maybe twice a month at some points until uh, until the spring game. So make sure you uh, you check the feeds and check the website, 2DVT.com. It's 2DVT at gmail.com if you want to send us anything. And then always on Twitter, it's at 2DVT. So thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Make sure if you have the time to write us an iTunes review. It was another great season, season number three for me and Robbie. And, you know, we're going to be back again next year. So make sure to always keep tuning back into the podcast. Uh, Until next time when we are, I guess we'll be talking some signing day and probably a little bit more basketball. Exactly. Go Hokies. Go Hokies.